como decía usted, los cristianos. You asked me about Christians eh, in the U.S. and what I want them to think about. Ese tipo de presidentes y ellos. Christians are able to vote in the U.S. Pero, they can vote for the kind eh, of president they want. And their political decisions mundo. have an impact ¿verdad? all over the world. Esa, they must carefully consider and study eso, who they vote for. Because that person will affect world politics, not just U.S. policy. Entonces, they no mustn't think of the USA alone, but should Unidos, think about the rest of the world. That's what demás, Christians do. They think of others. Welcome to Beyond Soundbites. I'm Jacob Mao. This podcast is built around the idea that every person who becomes a refugee, migrant, or asylum seeker is created in God's image and loved by Him with a depth we cannot comprehend. It started in 2017 when I burned out after working for many years with a refugee resettlement organization in Chicago. I took a trip to Turkey to rediscover the personhood of refugees for myself and invited you along for that journey as listeners. Three years later, on the heels of another election and 10 months into a global pandemic that has all but reset our public memory, we're revisiting some of the massive policy changes made since President Trump took office and how they have affected the two areas of U.S. immigration designed to deal with forcibly displaced people, refugee resettlement and asylum. In episodes 17 and 18, we met Trong, a woman resettled from Vietnam as a refugee in the mid-90s. Now we shift to the Northern Triangle countries of Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. In 2018, and especially 2019, the number of families from these countries who traveled north together to seek asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border increased exponentially, overwhelming a system designed to house and process single adults. That number fell drastically as various deterrent strategies were put in place in the months preceding the pandemic. In these episodes, we'll hear specifically from folks in Honduras and in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, people I met while traveling in late 2019 and early 2020. Their voices remind us of asylum-related headlines frequent only a year ago that have faded from public consciousness and been forgotten by many of us. Things like remain in Mexico, family separation, zero tolerance, safe third country agreements, and cutting foreign aid to Central America. Hearing from people who were seeing and feeling and experiencing the outworking of these policies on the ground before COVID-19 has a way of revealing the mentality behind the dizzying fluster of actions the Trump administration has continued to take throughout the pandemic, an aggressive focus on lowering immigration across the board, especially asylum. Over another four years as we move through and past COVID-19, that underlying mentality would certainly continue actualizing itself into similar policies. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. Now let's get started. Well, I want to give my greetings to all of my people who are in the United States. A hug from Tegucigalpa. I want to tell them we know they're heading into the coldest, frozen part of the winter, and that it's very severe. But that warmth of human connection is the sweetest thing we have, that we must stay open to one another, that we need to help each other. Senora Malvia runs a shoe store in the John F. Kennedy neighborhood, 
east of the central district in Tegucigalpa. In November 2019, she welcomed my interpreter and I into her store and talked to us for a couple hours. She's a single woman in her 60s, never married but has an adopted daughter and granddaughter. Migration, she says, is a central theme of her life. Her father came from El Salvador to marry her mom, a Honduran. And today, several of her extended family members live in the United States, some for almost 20 years. There is a relationship, a certain type of sweetness, a thankfulness towards the United States my family feels because our boys are over there, the nephews, the oldest ones. And they're working. They can send money to help my sister and her husband because they're already old and still need to pay for medical treatment. And so the nephews can help out with money, because here it's still very difficult. The majority of people in Honduras depend on the public health system, which isn't great. For example, there are almost 90% fewer physicians per thousand people in Honduras than there are in the United States. In 2015, several high-ranking officials, including the vice president of Congress, were arrested on corruption charges involving fraudulent processes for procuring medicine, basically for siphoning over a billion dollars from the Ministry of Health through shell companies that sold the government low-quality, overpriced medicine that ultimately cost the lives and health of taxpaying citizens. Similar cases of fraud in the medical system were revealed more recently during the pandemic. As we'll hear later, the sense of indignity at being robbed of decent treatment by corrupt leaders and poorly-run institutions is part of the mentality that pushes people to leave their homes and families and cultures in search of something better. Leaving Honduras for the U.S. with the proper paperwork, however, isn't easy. Senora Malvia told us that her sister and brother-in-law had tried earlier that year to get a visa to go visit her son in the U.S., but they were denied. These migration laws that we have now are very strong. So much so that the situation is closed. So all this, it costs them more. Before, people could go to visit their family members and they could come back. But now, no. Well, my sister wants to go there. My nephews want to come here. But the security situation here makes it an inopportune time for them to come. So they will continue to deal with the situation and try to see if they can get their permission. If someone over there can request for them to come. And if not, they can always call them or video chat, right? They're always in communication. But of course my sister wants to have her sons. Because imagine, one of them has already been over there for 18 years. The other's been there for almost 10 years. Her grandchildren, my nephew's kids, they don't know their grandmother. So, more than anything, it affects the family, right? This is one of the situations that we're forced to go through because of migration. Very heavy. But the good thing is that we can communicate with one another and that they're always in contact with each other. Okay, that's how we came to have this opportunity, like many Hondurans, to have people from our family living in the United States. All of them continue to truly learn the culture, the laws, and the people there. What they tell us is that 
Here we are not able to save as many dollars as we thought we would. We work a lot. It's very tiring, exhausting. But we live well. There is no danger. There is no risk like there is in our country. Growing up, Senora Malvia told us, her dad would often talk of El Salvador, how he missed it, the rich food, the hardworking people. This encouraged her later on in life to get involved with the work of caring for and supporting people who become migrants, as well as the families they leave behind. For years, she has worked with the Association of the Scalabrinian Sisters, one of dozens of Catholic entities around the world, named after an Italian bishop who devoted his career to caring for Italian migrant communities in the Americas in the 1800s. In Honduras today, the sisters work in collaboration with other parts of the Catholic Church as well as partner organizations like IOM and the Red Cross. They have initiatives across different regions and parishes to support people who have returned. We would call them deportees in the U.S. Even a special program that supports returnees who suffered injuries from trauma on the journey north. They also work to educate people who are considering to migrate and make sure they are aware of the risks and realities of the journey. Together with her own life experience, this work has given Senora Malvia even sharper insights into migration and its underlying issues. And so our people are leaving because of many situations. Not only because of the poverty, because poverty you find in every country. Rather, it's because of the violence, the insecure situation. This is why our people are going, even school children, children who are only 12 or 13 years old or in high school. This last week on Friday, they killed a young high school boy. They took him after he had left the high school and they killed him. I think it was in a different neighborhood. And another young girl was going to her high school over in Alancho Catacamas. She was going with her little backpack, and, well, our children are dying because of the violence. She went on to talk more about the crime using the regional term maras, which often refers to gangs and organized crime in general. There's a situation, the maras. They're organized. And the first thing they look for are the children, the youth. And so a young person has two risks. Enter the maras, sell drugs, or they can go. These are the three paths left for them. Look, if you enter the maras, this is with violence. Sell drugs, or become a migrant. And for this, many, many children are in the United States. Well, they're not in the United States, they're in the border area. And for those who have arrived, they're bringing them back to Mexico or another place. Well, this is the situation. They're the ones who are suffering the most from this situation. Our children, our young people, our adolescents. This was November 2019. The U.S. had introduced the Remain in Mexico policy almost a year before, which we'll hear more about later, and had recently signed agreements with Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala that it could send people to one of those countries from the U.S.-Mexico border to seek protection there instead of in the U.S. By the time that COVID hit in March 2020, 900 Salvadoran and Honduran asylum seekers, singles and families, had been sent to Guatemala. After COVID, the U.S. began turning away young people as well under the direction of the CDC. 
between March and June of 2020, just over 2,000 unaccompanied minors were expelled or scheduled to be expelled to the home countries they had left. And also because of the violence here, children are afraid. Many children have left high school because they're afraid. And so it's the kind of life where they're moving a lot in the shadows, timidly with fear. They're terrified because principally, they're prey for the organized groups. The bullet point root causes of Central American migration, things that show up in tidy categories and graphs when you read reports or news articles, weaved in and out of each other during Senora Malvia's passionate diatribes. They circled each other, poverty into violence, into corruption, into poverty over and over, past into present, present into past. In 2009, there was a coup. And since then, everything has started to fall apart. The Supreme Court doesn't do anything. The public ministry doesn't do anything. The deputies are tied up in it all. The laws that they make don't help. Rather than helping the people, it's the opposite. And so the president is doing things for... Well, he has truly abused his power in incredible ways. Completely unbelievable. And so this hurt us a lot. Look, we lost the Millennium Bill because of corruption. It was a bill that was being facilitated by the United States. It was a great support. But after the coup, the government didn't qualify because of the corruption. This is very painful, but it's also our reality. We need to talk about what's happening. The corruption, the violence, the lack of opportunities for our children, our youth, our people. We have almost nothing. And so this generates more and more migration. The coup she referred to was part of a broader political crisis in 2009 centered on rewriting the Honduran constitution. Shortly before our trip, which was November 2019, the brother of current president Juan Orlando Hernandez was convicted on drug trafficking charges in New York, sparking protests all over Honduras. We saw the rallying cry, Fuera J-O-H, out with the president, spray-painted all over the city. And well, in terms of migration, for us it's something vital. Because our people are leaving. Every day they're leaving. Every day they're leaving. Even if they hear that they're constructing a wall and will put them in detention, they search for a way to migrate. Because above all, what they want is for the youth. What they want is to save their lives. A few hours northwest of Tegucigalpa in a small mountain town called La Union, we spoke with a man named Alexander who had made that journey north for the sake of his kids, to save their lives. Not from the gangs or violence in their case, but from the crushing burden of poverty. Around town, he told us with a shy laugh, he's known as El Viejo, which translates roughly to old guy, perhaps because of his silvery hair. He sits on the town council, he studied agriculture and ran his own coffee farm on land passed down to him from his family until coffee blights 
also sometimes called coffee rust in English, hit the region in 2012 and again in 2018. La, la decisión para, para hacer el viaje, ¿verdad? A los Estados Unidos. The decision to make the trip to the United States was for a better future for my family. Here, in this country, there are no job opportunities. Besides, I'm 42, and in most places, they look at your age before giving you a job. And in Honduras, they're scarce. So that was the main goal. Another reason is that we made our living from coffee. After the blight, coffee prices dropped. We lost the farm. The goal was to provide for my family, to make sure they got a chance at a better education than we had, maybe even go to college. That's the priority. The majority of Hondurans who migrate send money back home while working overseas in order to pay for family members' daily expenses, tuition for their children, medical expenses for elderly parents. These remittances play a fundamental but complicated role in communities across Central America. After Hurricane Mitch devastated the country and displaced 1.5 million Hondurans in 1998, migration to the U.S. increased significantly, along with remittances. So much so that from 2005 till present, Remittance money, mostly from the U.S., has made up 15 to 20 percent of the Honduran gross domestic product each year. Nestled among mountains covered in dense foliage and coffee farms, the town of La Union is scattered with houses that are noticeably nicer and more expensive than the others. Two-story concrete structures, some with decorative door frames and railings. Some of these, a resident told us, belong to people who have been able to make a decent living in coffee, but many were built with remittance money from relatives in the U.S. To put some numbers to it, the standard rate for farm labor in La Union is 120 lempiras a day, a little less than $5. One man who runs a small store in the community told us that if he worked really hard, he could make 5,000 lempiras, about $200, a month to cover minimal basic living expenses for his family. When he worked in the U.S. for a time in 2017, a car dealership in Nashville, Tennessee, he could make $1,000 a week. This kind of math makes the choice to migrate seem simple, at least in some ways. It's not an easy decision to make, but my wife and I thought about it a lot. And, as she said, we must find a way because we have no other options. It's not easy to leave your family or to make it all the way through a one- or two-month trip, if you're lucky. When we talked about our goal, it was to be in the U.S. three to four years max, and then come back, and that's a lot of time. In fact, the day we were going to leave, my dad came over to say goodbye, and he told me, if you make it, I don't know if we'll ever see each other again. You never know. Poverty pushed Alexander onward, following an often dangerous pathway that hundreds of thousands have taken. In January 2019, he and his nine-year-old son, also named Alexander, left with a group of other families under the guidance of a smuggler, also called a coyote. This was about seven months after public outcry in the U.S. led to the end of automatic family separations at the border, a policy that put children in government custody while their parents separately underwent prosecution for crossing the border illegally. 
Families were still being separated on a discretionary basis in 2019. Nonetheless, everyone in Alexander's group traveled with their children because they heard it would increase their likelihood of gaining asylum. Alexander was also relying on information from a neighbor who had made the trip a year before and reported back that he had been granted asylum solely on the basis of his economic situation. The group crossed Guatemala and Mexico by bus. Thankfully, Alexander said, the journey went smooth. They stayed safe, no injuries, kidnapping, extortion. They made it safely to the border city of Reynosa. We thought only of our arrival, and we were so hopeful. It was exciting, especially for Alexander. His mind was made up. He wants to live in America. Maybe because of movies? He wants to see snow. Even though I told him the state we were heading for only had sunshine. <laughs> he still says once he gets there, to the U.S., he will travel further north so he can see real snow. That's his dream. I tease him and tell him if I ever try again, I'll take my daughter instead. He says no and that he is going. They crossed the Rio Grande somewhere outside of Reynosa, waited for Border Patrol agents to find them, and told them that they wanted to claim asylum. After some time in detention, the famous Icebox, as it's nicknamed in migrant communities, they were transferred to a residential facility in Carnes County, Texas. Within eight days, they had completed an interview and received notice that their claim had been denied. Alexander and I were in the office when she said we failed the interview, though we could appeal to the judge. The moment when she told us we could appeal, when she said we were being deported, that moment was very tough. Alexander cried. He wanted to stay in the U.S. I felt all that as well. I was desperate and disappointed that our dream was over. He kept crying, asking me to appeal to the judge because we were told we could appeal. But no, I knew. I heard all the stories from different people about the judge. Everyone knew that there was no way to pass your interview with the judge. That day, that particular moment, was the hardest for me. It was hard to see him cry, to know our dream was over. My boy was so excited, then crushed. That was very difficult. He cried. He hugged me and begged that we speak to the judge. But we couldn't stay there. That was the most painful moment for us. Alexander and his son were transferred to Houston for a flight back to Honduras. They returned to La Union in mid-February. The whole ordeal took about five weeks. Aside from sharing the difficult details of his own migration journey with us, Alexander spent a lot of time expressing things that he would like listeners in the U.S. to understand about why so many people risk so much to make the journey that he had made. The United States is a global superpower, and everything we hear about it makes us believe that everyone in the U.S. is fine and has everything they need. They have an excellent economy, 
Entonces, eh, so, I want people in the U.S., gringos, to realize we are human. We also have dreams. The thing is, we live in developing poor countries. We can't achieve our dreams because of our circumstances, but we still have them. It's our economic situation that limits us. I hope people in the U.S. can see this point. Just like them, we want to work to achieve our dreams. Maybe because they have what they need. They can't imagine others not having their needs met. Our people want to work and overcome. There are some who have no goals, no dreams, and might be complacent. But a lot of us want to change our circumstances. Think about that. We want to work, achieve goals, and be okay. You asked me about Christians in the U.S. and what I want them to think about. Christians are able to vote in the U.S. They can vote for the kind of president they want. And their political decisions have an impact all over the world. They must carefully consider and study who they vote for. Because that person will affect world politics, not just U.S. policy. They shouldn't think of the USA alone, but should think about the rest of the world. That's what Christians do. They think of others. Near the end of our time together, we asked Alexander if there was anything else he'd like to express to listeners in the U.S., particularly Christian ones. There was a long, thoughtful pause. He was careful, almost hesitant, as if he suspected the divide between his history and our history, his reality and our reality as American listeners, was too vast to be bridged with a 90-minute conversation. As I was telling you, my friend was telling me that last year, you only had to say that you were migrating because of poverty and you got the permit. But in the following months, because as a migrant you're not up to date on all the changes and we should have researched more what was going on in the U.S., to ask for asylum, you had to say that your life was in danger or being threatened by the Maras. To answer your question, because as I understand it, the project wants to let gringos, especially Christian gringos, know the conditions of immigrants. Poverty is a major threat. Because we have dreams, too. And poverty is crushing us. People have even taken their own lives because of poverty. When they realize that they can't provide their household needs, people become desperate. They say, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what to do. And they end up taking their own lives. What do other folks do when they reach extreme poverty? If they're women, many times they turn to prostitution so that they can have some money to take home. In other cases, people resort to stealing. A lot of young people turn to drugs. Poverty is killing us too. I don't necessarily have to have my life threatened by someone. So think about that too. The question, I believe, is, isn't poverty killing us?
The decision to migrate that Alexander and his family made can be multiplied hundreds of thousands of times over across Central America. In fact, their interaction with border agents after crossing the river was one of 188,000 such encounters with individual Hondurans traveling as family units that U.S. Customs and Border Patrol reported in 2019. If you add in Guatemala and El Salvador, that number jumps to 430,000 people crossing as family units, a surge of families that totals more than the previous six years combined. This surge began after the headlines about zero tolerance and family separation policies. It was also largely facilitated by increasingly organized smuggling networks that catered to families, offering relatively safe express bus trips across Mexico like the one that Alexander described, and in some regions charging up to $7,000 a person in 2019. Many policy experts, not just anti-immigration hardliners, agree that certain U.S. laws and court rulings have incentivized such journeys and the illicit smuggling industries that facilitate them. Before the Remain in Mexico policy was implemented, for example, families seeking asylum who passed initial screenings were detained briefly, then released to join family members in the U.S. For years, a huge backlog in immigration courts has meant that a person seeking asylum in the U.S. could remain legally here, sometimes for up to two years, until their case is decided. But one important factor in considering how to remedy such systemic imperfections is to remember what Signora Malvia told us. She said, even if they hear they're constructing a wall and will put them in detention, our people will search for a way to migrate because above all, what they want is for the youth. What they want is to save their lives. Love for the next generation, the vision and conviction of parents who see the God image clearly in their children and believe that they deserve respect safety and opportunity. This is what drives hundreds of thousands northward. It also drives others, like a woman we'll meet in the next episode, to stay put and support the next generation by fighting for the good of their communities, child by child, street by street. Beyond Soundbites is created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational supporters include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Local Community Partners, Abounding Service, and World Relief. Alana Murphy served as the interpreter and project advisor during the trip to Honduras. Comfort Sampong of AJS helped us connect with interviewees, as did Arturo Venegas, who hosted us and drove us around. Thanks as well to Lily Song, Maria Lisa Tehran, Joy Bittner, Karen Gonzalez, and Judith Still for translation support. Karen Gonzalez and Matt Sorens provided content direction. Hannah Bonifacius and Caprice Applequist offered editorial support. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music for Beyond Soundbites. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. This episode was mixed by Matt McQueen at Gem City Studios in Jellicoe, Tennessee. 
Thank you.